So welcome to the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. Brent, how you doing? I've been hounding you for months. Uh, you were either going to take out a restraining order on me or come on the podcast. I'm glad it's the latter. So welcome to the show. No, no, no. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, yeah, uh, like I was saying before, it's my schedule is usually pretty wide open, but then I just had a lot of things all come together at the last minute. So it's a pleasure to be here. I always like to talk about my stuff. So it's nice to get an opportunity. Yeah, you were mentioning to me when we were going back and forth um, about publishers and stuff like that. Is, is that anything you could talk about at the moment or is it all hush-hush at this stage? It's mostly hush-hush. I can say that uh, I've, I've had three designs. Well, one is an older design that I've kind of revisited, but um, it looks like two of them are probably getting picked up. Uh, one for sure. The other one, we're kind of back and forth over what we're going to do. But, but yeah, I can't tell you many more details than that, but... Yeah, I'm kind of excited to see an, an older title kind of getting revisited and a, another board game that's going to be in the mix that should be out there. I'm hoping late this year, early next year. And uh, the other project, I'll probably end up kickstarting or doing something myself. It's not really a mass market game. It's more, you know, more hobby and niche. So larger publishers probably won't pick it up. So, um, Brent, I always like to do this because it's such good audio is hold stuff up to the camera that no one will ever see apart from you. So I've got my two books here in front of me. I've got Rogue Planet. I've got uh, Mayhem, Fantasy Mass Battles. I've been obsessing over these books recently and I'm looking forward to getting together with my pal and, and playing a few games. Uh, and I'm just really enjoying reading the books and and. The way it all works to me, uh, I'm not somebody who has played a lot of games, so I don't have a lot of experience, but it seems to me very different to the stuff that I've come across before. So if you don't mind, Brent, I, I just want to sort of run through uh, these two games, Mayhem and Rogue Planet, maybe starting with Mayhem, if that's okay with you. I've got some just general questions about the game to, to put to you that I think the audience will find really interesting. Uh, uh, yes, let's do it. <laughs> so on Mayhem then, uh, so I've been tentatively building some 6 mil uh, armies up for the, the purpose of playing Mayhem. So that looks to me really like the game is designed for that scale, although you, you do say in the book that you could, if you want, use 28 mil, couldn't you? You could, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's pretty it's pretty flexible in, in that, you know, and you know, size isn't so much of a difference because the distances, I think, work either way. It's probably better for 10 or 15 as far as the scale looks, but perfectly fine for 48, like old school Warhammer style as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what, what sort of stuff are we going to need to play a game of Mayhem then, apart from our armies, like in terms of uh, dice and plane size and stuff? Really, that's about it. If you've got your armies, you just need some dice, uh, something to be able to measure with. The dice do use a typical D20 RPG dice, so you'll need an assortment of different types of D4s, D6s, D8s, 12s, 20s. Um, but other than that, that's really it. There's not a, not a lot of record keeping or bookkeeping. There's no casualty removal, so... Yeah, that's the, yeah. The, the first thing that I was sort of looking at. So we've got this mechanic where we've got a, a stat line from what I could see um, and the three main things we're looking at is, is well, uh, you've got your movement, you've got your combat quality and you've got your ballistic armour rating. Uh, and these, correct me if I'm wrong, seem to be represented by different uh, types of dice. 
Correct. Yeah. And I thought the dice were great, you know, in, in this game in particular, especially for simulating mass battle, we've got that, uh, you know, default versus danger system. So default means you can either take half the value of the dice. So a D8 is a D4, D6 is a three. Um, but you can also have danger where you're rolling the dice to try to get a little extra movement so that D8, instead of moving the steady D4, you can try to push across the field. And this, you know, I think it kind of elegantly maps, um, you know, unequal footing or people being unsure or mixed up in orders and command structure. Um, and it also makes it where you can't exactly calculate how far you're going to be able to go on any given movement or what your uh, opponent's going to do. So it adds a bit of uncertainty to the battlefield. And I, I for me, that was a nice, I think, decision point uh, to start with because it, it it's a choice every time you pick up the dice. Am I going to roll this? Am I going to try to get more dice to get a higher average? Or am I going to, you know, play it safe and go with the steady, you know, plotting and predictability. And, you know, I think it plays to personalities and play styles. Yeah, I really like that because if you compare it to likes of Warhammer or Kings of War, which I'm, I'm, you know, I don't dislike as a game, but when you line up your forces on the table, anyone with half a brain could see, you know, well, they, they move this amount, they move that amount. We we know exactly when everyone's going to meet because it's just basic maths and turn sequence. Like, we know it's all going to go to plan like that. Whereas with this, you're like, well, I don't know, you know, or I, I could really be focusing because, like, I'm going to touch on in a second, we've got this sort of command points resource management structure. We've got the overdrive mechanic as well. So, you could really spend a bit of time in one area of the battlefield, putting all your resources into one manoeuvre rather than just this like straight line manoeuvre towards each other and like we'll all have at it, like a, a sort of sporting event. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, without kind of jumping ahead too much, I'll let you kind of lead the discussion on the mechanics. But yeah, when we start talking about overdrive and the command points, it does allow you to, I, I from a design point, I talk about this in Rogue Planet too, I call it like shifting the camera. We're going we're gonna to watch this flank for a moment, or we're going to watch the center line of the battle. And it also means instead of, like you said, two big lines that are going to push across the field towards one another, we have an opportunity to, you know, let's send, you know, forth a, you know, a probing force on the flanks or some fast cavalry or let's focus on shooting first and now instead of you know we could you know like you just said in a, these other games i don't want to say they're bad games but we know that you're going to march across the field straight across the field everyone's going to be x number of inches from each other and there's a little bit of maneuverability here i think you know we've created something where you've got every option available depending on what you want to do and how you've built your force and, and theme them as well. I think the theme is important too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that this command points uh, system, like I was saying, it's it's resource management. You've got a, a set amount of command points and that will be determined uh, when you're putting your army together, won't it? You, you'll get a dice uh, to determine how many command points you're going to get. Is that right? Correct. And you know, you can have that to where it's set or variable as well. So you can play it safe and try to have, you know, more orders or commands, or you can, you know, roll the dice and try to get a little bit of extra out and, you know, send a few more orders out there. So once again, am I going to be able to activate three units, four units, and or am I going to focus on doing multiple things with a unit if I've got a lot of command, um, kind of focus my attention and orders on a specific area of the battlefield as well. So that command and control element, I think, is well represented by that, too. It's not just everyone's going forward. It's I'm giving orders how many things 
how many things can I do effectively? Or is that even important to me? Do I want to focus on individual elements and push aspects of the battle? Mm -hmm. And the, the overdrive mechanic as well. I mean, it, it seems like this gives us the opportunity to to really push the boat out on one particular uh, unit or something like that. You know, you you maybe you've given a lot of examples in the book. You you've got a unit of orcs with a bit of a push. They could maybe get somewhere and attack someone. They could maybe even get back out the way. But it's going to cost you. Um, you're going to accumulate command points. It's going to cost more and more. But it gives you the possibility to 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 sort of put your neck out and try something like that, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I, you know, and it costs you more, you know, the overdrive for people who don't know the game. Um, as you give a command and overdrive, it costs a little more each time, but that focus allows you to push them further. So yeah. So if your opponent's thinking, oh, I've got this line marching straight forward me. And now all of a sudden those orc berserkers that you have can charge straight in. It's, um, it's, it's a nice bit of disruption and keeps things a little less predictable. Um, which I think is fun, but it also keeps the analysis paralysis out of it because you really, there's too many vectors and possibilities to predict everything. So you're more playing the opponent and their style as opposed to the army and heuristics of the situation. On the movement as well, it, it looks like there's maybe an advanced uh, mechanic where you could line up ranks of troops and move them together. Have I interpreted that properly? You did. Um, and that's one of those things where, you know, let's say I have, you know, three units of spearmen or, you know, some spearmen and pikemen flanked together. If I put them together and give them a, a standing order, they will just start marching across the field at their default. And so that's kind of like taking them out of the command point. So, you know, if I've got three to six units in the middle of the field that I've put together that are just going across, now I can focus on the flanks or some shooting or flying my hero across on a dragon while they're just moving. And to me, that kind of represents, you know, this is the plan before the battle. These, it's your one simple order. You're going to do this thing. And then as they meet the enemy or they, the formations get disrupted, all that falls apart. And now you're not nearly as efficient. So you're, you're modeling that chaos of battle and the lack of efficiency. Once you meet engagements as well. Um, but there's not a lot to track with that either. So I think, yeah, that was another goal of the system is let's have it, we're up front. We can do these, we can kind of put everything on autopilot. We're not, you know, working this out and, you know, micromanaging it. And then as the battle progresses, you, you can respond to how the enemies attacked you or, or successes you didn't think you were going to get in battle as well. Yeah, that, I like that because although like with games, it's not about being super realistic, but it's still nice to have these nods to realism throughout your narrative. And I like that fact that, you know, these units of troops, they don't have like the internet, they don't have the, the general on the phone, you know, keep going and micromanaging this. It's going to be the case where it's like, look, lads, I'll, I'll be away over here. So you guys just need to keep moving forward until you know, until the situation changes. So it just, it gives that element of the, the general can't be everywhere. Sometimes he's just got to delegate and leave it alone and see what happens. Yeah, exa exactly. And that's, that's the thing. And like, you know, you, you brought up an important point. I think it's kind of important in, in most design. Um, you, you've got, you know, simulation where you're trying to exactly model something. And for me personally, I try to avoid that and go for the feeling of a thing. And, you know, just to get the right abstraction so that, it feels like you're doing a thing without actually having a 10 step guide to model ultra realism. Um, 
And that's kind of always one of my design goals. Let's let's provide a feeling of the thing, the essence of it, without actually simulating it step by step like you would with a computer program or a hardcore war game that gets into you know to drive types and vehicles and calculating ground hardness and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's raining <laughs> a bit now. We need to change that. Right. <laughs> So on the on the movement and distances, do we do we do we stay with inches no matter what scale we're going with? Do we just keep it in inches, or do we move to centimeters, or is there anything like that? You can switch between the two, and uh, as long as you're consistent, uh, you know, and the old doubling trick that you can do with war games to to kind of make it similar, it, it's fine either way. And I tell people, you know, adapt to a what you think looks and feels right and also the size of your battlefield if you're going to be playing on a, a coffee table as opposed to a classic gaming table or the kitchen table you know sometimes centimeters with the smaller unit sizes as well if you're playing something really small you know like a, a 10 millimeter game that can work well too um i think consistency is the key and i'm not really for me personally i'm never like size or scale agnostic unless it really means something in the system and I think it's more personal taste, and I like to leave that to the to the players running the game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Could you yeah. talk to us a wee bit about the, the combat system then, and how we actually get to to the fighting, whether that's melee or uh, shooting at people? Yeah. So w- with the combat, once you once once you get stuck in um, the dice system, where you know you're rolling higher for like ranged attacks or higher for movement. Um, lower rolls are going to be better for combat. So you're trying to get combos of sets of dice to, to roll under your opponent with ones being automatic elimination or, or things that'll try to route your enemy. Um, and because it is a mass scale battle game, we're looking to get bonus dice for, you know, having a, you know, a flank, the enemy flanked or someone on their rear, you're going to get multiple chances. And that's just going to push up your odds of getting those lower numbers. And once again, you can always take the default value. So if I'm in combat and I've got a really, you know, low die type, like a D6, I can take the three and tell my opponent, hey, you've got to try to roll under this or not um, and put the pressure on them so I can be very consistent. Or it also gives you the chance for that goblin with a, a, a D12 melee ability to make a dice roll on a one and hit that you know, crucial shot where they, they get it done. So once again, another decision point, do I roll? Do I not? Do I take the default and force my opponent to make the roll? Um, and Mm. I I find it works pretty well. And once again, no casualty removal. So we're going to be, you know, either routing the enemy, making them flee or wiping them out completely. Mm Mm-hmm. And with that, with that one being a critical hit as well, did have you heard a lot over the years of people saying, oh, I'll be great at this because I roll loads of ones? Do you hear a lot of that? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, always. And people either love it or hate it. And it's great when it's, you know, for them or when it's against them. But, you know, uh, you know, statistically and balance-wise, it, it works. It's just, you know, any dice game are always going to feel away when you make a roll. Um, but, mm. yeah, you always get the stories of, you know, my opponent rolled four ones against me or, you know, just the opposite. I rolled you know, four twenties on a D 20 in a row and did me nothing. So yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's war game stories though, right? Miniatures, you always have those battles where you've beat the odds or rolled the crits or the doubles. And, uh, I, I enjoy those. On the, on the resolve and harm section, um, there's something I can't quite figure out, which is no slight on you. It's just that I'm terrible at interpreting Mm -hmm. rules and reading books. So (laughs) I I can see that you can do, um, 
there's the disorder. So if if you do harm to a unit, you're going to put a disorder token on them. And as far as I yes. could see, if a unit has a disorder token and you inflict any more harm on them, they're eliminated. But I'm I'm curious as to how because it talks about having several disorder tokens. So how how do you actually get more than one disorder token? Um, there are certain abilities in there that can allow you to have more disorder tokens, but if by and large, if if you're not a monstrous unit or you know something that uses you know wounds, it's you know one disorder token is going to put you in disarray. If you don't rally and get that token off, the next attack is going to route you, and you know that's another another way in the system that we keep it kind of simple. So you're not removing casualties. How many people did you you know? How many creatures did you hurt or eliminate uh, enough to disorder them and make them flee? The next one, did you route them completely or run them off the battlefield? Uh, but yeah, you uh, you understood it right. Um, you just have to look through like different abilities and there's different ways and with expansions that you can put more disorder tokens on. Or like heavy armor will allow you to have, say, a second disorder token. So if a unit has heavy armor, it gives them a little more stain power. So they've got two. The third attack, once they've got both those on, will will route them. And of course, the mm-hmm. one is the critical. Yeah, so it's that kind of. It's like that jab, jab hook kind of twofold. Like I'll disorder you, I'll kill you. Like um, it, it reminds me a bit of we were playing recently, Song of Blades and Heroes, and a, a big tactic with the fighting there seems to be knock the guy on his arse, then kill him. Like that seems to be like you can kill somebody when they're standing up, but a lot of it is knock them down and kill them. Uh, so disorder them and kill them. Along the, the exactly yeah we want to want to get chaos in the ranks and and like i say in the rules too you know that uh, you know you theme it how you want did i route them off the field and you know some units will actually flee away from you on certain attacks so when you attack them and run them down you know did, did they just flee completely did you you know leave them as a bloody stain on the field of battle it's it's up to your narration you know which i'm a big fan of and that's you know up to theming and up to the player but mm-hmm. either way they're not in play anymore and we're looking at it uh, in harm as well. We've got disorder for your your sort of standard human units, but then if we're dealing with like big monsters or stuff like that, it seems like we switch to damage. Or if we're looking at huge, massive hordes of things, we're looking at attrition. Uh, so th- yes. these are other ways of doing harm, aren't they? Yes, sir. There are, and and those are are more to uh, just give you a difference. One, if I think with like a horde, especially. Or, or a big monster, you're going to spend a lot of time modeling these units or making a vignette with a, a large creature in the middle of a horde. So if I've got a giant troll that's in the middle of a bunch of goblins or something, I, not only have I spent time modeling it and painting it, I want it to be on the table a little bit longer. And I think attrition gives you a chance to have it in the game. And it also models a different type of you know, a different type of threat. I need to handle this a little bit differently. And the same thing with damage. If I've got a monster that has damage on them, they're going to stick around a little bit longer and I need to, I can't just do that one, two punch. Now I've got to have a different attack and, and try to whittle them down. And and they present a different kind of threat to deal with as well. Yeah. So that with the damage, that's the point where your, your natural one doesn't automatically get rid of them, does it? There's a bit more to it than that. Right, right. We're looking at, you know, the difference between the die rolls, and that's going to determine how many wounds or damage we put on the creature. So, um, yeah, so they are the one that you've come to rely on and other things not quite as important. So you kind of have to shift gears. And to me, that's also a mental shift in what kind of threat it is. And it makes it feel 
more dangerous or like it's going to do a little a little more damage mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and have to take care of it differently as well. So can you talk a wee bit about the, the soft and hard counters system then? Yeah, soft and hard counters, um, that's kind of inspired. Like when, when I think of these kind of games, uh, I, and I say these kind of like mass battle games, I always go back to like Age of Empires and Age of Mythology and those RTSs uh, with my units moving across the field. And, you know, the rock, paper, scissors of those games I enjoy. So I wanted to have a light element you could do that, you know, made the the weapons in there feel a little more thematic. So um, the hard and soft counters are kind of a nod to the rock, paper, scissors. I'm going to have, you know, spears are better against, you know, cavalry and things like that. But here, instead of just adding more dice or extra dice, we can actually shift the die types one or two steps. So um, that reward. So once again, if I have a D10 for my, my CQ ability, if I've got a hard counter and I step that down to a D6, my odds of eliminating them and doing damage are much better. Also, it's a way of min maxing your stats on the field. And what I mean by that is if I, you know, it's obviously cheaper to give someone a higher die type for melee. So if I spend less money on a D10 or D12, but I use them effectively on the field to get, to turn them into a D8 or a D6 or D4, now I'm getting a lot more value out of them because of something I've done tactically, not because of my list building ability, but what I do in play. So it, it makes them more valuable in the space. And I think that's an important distinction and, and part of the you know reason we did the, the hard and soft counter system um, is to reward you in play with better statistics and a better chance of eliminating the enemy. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're looking at, you know, I've got this block of troops. They're, they're specialists at killing that block of troops over there. I'm going to really go after them because I know that this is what this group of troops are right. trained to do. Right. They might do fine, you know, against, you know, they might do fine, you know, their D10 against rank and file, but you put them against their hard counter now. Now they're a D6, which rolling, mm. you know, lower rolling a one is much better. And, you know, it's more economical to have them in my force if I'm, you know, spending less but getting proper matchups. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, quantity has a quality all its own as well. I start getting enough flanks and enough other things and rolling dice on attacks. I'll probably get my numbers as well to get attacks. So both both are viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, specialist, mm-hmm. uh, generalist, and positioning, I think, all come into play. Mm-hmm. If that so, makes sense. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And when, when we've got two units of troops that come together in combat, of course, there's always the opportunity for a tie. It looks like if we both roll a one, we could we could kill each other, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, and that's just basically, you know, they in my mind they've they've done enough damage to uh, you know to to leave two or three troops left on the field that aren't battle worthy or are just like uh, yeah, I've had enough of this, I'm out uh, of here, so they're going to the flee pub. the field of battle, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, or or if you know you got some big monsters or something, they you know they you know stabbed one another and it finished mm-hmm. each other off, so you know yeah, but yeah, it's like yeah, I always- if you both. I always remember that uh, photo uh, back in the day. It was like a, a crocodile had eaten a python or vice versa. A python had eaten a crocodile or an alligator. And they, they, they both died, you know. And it yeah. was like the pythons lying there were like bits of crocodile burst out its belly and it was dead too. So I imagine it as that. They both rolled a one. That's it. Yeah, both rolled a one. Perfect. <laughs> 
with the deadlock then, if we if we don't kill each other, um, it looks like you know we're at this impasse. But there's there's deadlock abilities from what I could see. So um, was it page seventeen? Again, good for the audio when I'm looking through a book. Uh, the turtle deadlock, the shield wall. Um, so it looks like there's two deadlock abilities there. Yeah, so the deadlocks just give you a chance for something interesting to happen when when you roll a tie. So you know you can uh, you can push an enemy back physically on the field, or or you know do other things, and it just gives you, I think, ties in addition to well the double kill. If you have abilities or an interesting a time for something interesting to happen, and so that's kind of what those abilities bring forward. It's just you know, a chance for something interesting to happen that adds to the story and changes the tactical makeup just a little bit. And another way to theme your army and kind of add a little more character in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we're putting together an army, then I'm, I'm looking at sort of how I'm going to start things up. I'm looking at, you know, there's there's costs associated with uh, die type when I'm building all my stats. And then we have like special abilities and, and traits and stuff as well, don't we? You could even you could add in extra standards that are going to give you additional roles when you're getting your command points, can't you? You can, yeah. And that's um, you know, and it, the most of my games and and the, these two in particular, Mayhem and Rogue Planet, it's pretty much free form. I don't have a lot of restrictions on building unless it just is something that doesn't work mechanically. So. You can add as many things to a unit as you want or as few or spend what you like. And yeah, the standards are a way to, you know, give you more command points and more dice when you're rolling and kind of expand your abilities across the field as well. So, you know, it's another way to tie in the modeling uh with actual abilities because you know people like units with standards and musicians and all the things and this gives you a chance to to have them actually give you a, a an impact in the game and a, and a reason to be there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are there uh, resources online where you could find like army templates for Mayhem or like quick reference guides or anything like that? Um, yeah, um, we have a uh, on Wargame Vault. You can go. They have a battle scribe builder that uh, one of the fans of the game created, and we also have like some custom armies in there. So if you wanted to go in and like build something real quick and get some example armies um it's it's on there obviously and if you download the game on wargame vault it comes with army builder sheets and quick references that kind of help you jump into it um but the battle scribe files if you like a typical computer-based army builder it's kind of nice and quick to get in there and there's some really good blogs out there too some blogs where people are really active um you know making their forces and sharing what they've done um but i always tell people it's kind of nice too just to you know, once you've read through the book, put all your forces out in front of you, put, you know, come up with something thematically first and then come back in and just start pointing it up and see what feels right uh, in the system. And then if you don't like it in a game, you know, you're not locked in, come back and change it up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the, the armies of mayhem on war game vault is kind of nice. If you have the, you know, traditional GW style armies, it kind of sets you up in an ecosystem where it's kind of like the baseline, you know, you have a typical empire style troop and you know orc and goblin army um chaos elves what elves high elves mm. you know and mages and magic and monsters to kind of match each one so to give you a jump start if you don't if you know for some people the the sandbox or the toolbox is a little overwhelming so that gives you a little direction and a little guidance um as how to how to get started 
And then I see that, you know, once we've played a few uh, games in its sort of normal form, there's a, there's a section at the end of the book that deals with, like, sieges and stuff as well, so we could really move into, like, the defending a castle or attacking a castle or that. So that looks a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and that was, uh, you know, that was another one that's kind of like a nod to the RTS as we kind of like compartmentalize those. So you could, you know, especially if you're playing at the like 10 or 15 millimeter or smaller scales, you could just get a lot of nice blocks of castle things together and, you know, live out those RTS dreams of, you know, taking over and storming the castle and making maneuvers and, you know, garrisoning troops and, yeah, it just adds that little extra layer. And especially if you're really keen on the modeling side, it gives you another excuse to go in and just, you know, make some cool stuff, which is, you know, why we why we do these hobbies in the first place. I think we like we like the cool toys and that's just another opportunity to, you know, flex your modeling muscles and do mm-hmm. things. Did you know that just like every other podcast out there, this show has its very own Patreon, but this is no ordinary Patreon. It's actually the worst Patreon ever. That's right, there's no rewards, no extras, no bonus content, no early access, no shoutouts and no thank yous. I'll just take the money and quietly get on with making the show. Not that there's any money to take because hardly anyone's pledging to the thing. Like I say, it's the worst Patreon ever. Find it at bedroombattlefields.com slash worst Patreon ever. That's all one word, worst Patreon ever. Now, back to the show. So from uh, from Mayhem to Rogue Planet then, and the, the background for me personally with Rogue Planet is I, I actually bought the book a few years ago because I just kind of came back into the hobby and, and adult life and, and was looking around and I, I'd heard good things about it. So I picked the book up, but then because I get so few times that I could actually play games, I'd spent all my playing time playing uh, Joe McCulloch's games, um, Rangers of Shadowdeep mainly, and I'd got Stargrave as well, which looked really cool. And I was I was collecting, you know, various miniatures uh, of a sci-fi sort of persuasion to put together something for that. And then I was thinking, as cool as Stargrave looks, there are similarities with Frostgrave and Rangers of Shadow Deep. And I wanted to try something different. And I, I actually went back one day and I picked Rogue Planet back up and I started to read through it. Uh, and I thought, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a shot first when we're gonna you know, get sci-fi stuff on the table, I want to do this, and I started to read through it and got got really excited about various mechanics in it again, so Rogue Planet, Brent, like, what what would you say the, what are the key similarities and differences between this game and, and Mayhem that we've just talked about? Honestly, if we're, if we're say they're, they're pretty different games as far as the design goes, but I think in some ways they're going to feel so similar because of how dynamic they are um but where you've got you know command points and and mass battle and and mayhem rogue planet is really cinematic uh over the top action um and you know there's no measurement there i mean to start with there's no measurement so you don't need a ruler you don't need anything uh to track at all um and it's really about letting you do cool stuff that you see in sci-fi games. If you want to, you know, you know, pick up another model and throw them into something, you can do that. If you want to have terrain that can attack people, it's there. Um, and 
yeah, there's no movement rules. So you're moving around. Your decision points are totally different. And it's got a graded success system. So every time you roll the dice, there's a chance that you're going to give your opponent uh, an opportunity to do something or make a movement or an action. So now instead of just randomly attacking, you really have to think, what are my odds of success? Am I going to let them do something? Is it worth taking this risk? Um, yeah, they're both freeform and build. They're both pretty dynamic. But yeah, Rogue Planet definitely leans way more into narrative and cinematics and, uh, you know, over just over the top action. It could be more Final Fantasy anime or maybe really more what 40K fluff is mm-hmm. as opposed to gameplay. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a big contrast more than similarities. There are a few, like I said, similar decision points at a few points, but I think they're going to feel very different on the table. Mm-hmm. That's the intention anyway. Yeah. And we're, again, we're, we're looking at this resource management, aren't we? We've got the action points this time. So that works on a, a similar way, doesn't it? It does. Um, and here you can spend your action points and go back and forth between units. Uh, the big difference is, is instead of like the overdrive mechanic where we're constantly pushing the same unit over and over here, you can flex back and forth in between units. So you can alternate between a couple of units and then go hit another unit. Um, so yeah, once again, asymmetrical battlefield, but the way that you push is different. The, the end result is similar though, because you don't have, you know, a, a movement distance you're not measuring ranges so you still get a lot of dynamic movement and it's really hard to predict where people are going to move and what they're going to do until you kind of get grounded in you know creating intercepting models and things like that but yeah what with no movement range modifiers then would you say that the game really benefits from being pretty terrain heavy on the tabletop yeah, I, I would say either terrain heavy makes it more interesting or or just thoughtful placement of terrain. Anything that's going to, you know, you know, triangulate, make you triangulate movement or move around and make some straight lines. And and also thinking of your troops and like building your armies to engage troops, you know, where you can't just move straight into combat with someone who's further back. So using engaging models and, you know cannon fodder up front or moving them around sides and flanks in conjunction with your terrain becomes very important in the system yeah i think when you first start with it though absolutely heavy terrain makes it you know much easier to get a grasp on the system and and movement rules and then later on you can just use a few pieces thoughtfully placed to make for you know interesting I, I call I think of it like building a first person shooter level. You know, you want to have areas where different types of things can shine, like sniper alleys versus, you know, CQ things where the people are going to get bottlenecked and other things like that. So it, it gives you a little bit of design element in that sense, I think, when you when you're making your table more so than other games to as to what the vibe's gonna be. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I like the the counteract system. We, we always hear these funny anecdotes of people playing like Warhammer or Forty K or that, and it's like you know my opponent's turn, so I'm going to make a cup of tea, walk the dog, uh, you know, drive up north, <laughs> go on holiday, right, come back. Right. <laughs> so I really like this this um, idea that we're never out the game. You know, we're never just going and looking out the window because there's always going to be, or there's usually an opportunity to to jump in and, and spoil something, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I and agreed. You want to be engaged the whole time and you want to, you know, make your opponent think, hey, if I charge him, is he going to use, you know, his 
those rogue abilities. Are they going to try to shoot at me? Are they going to try to, you know, intercept my movement? And with that graded success system, if they fail, oh, I'm going to get a movement here or I'm going to get to do, uh, you know, something else. And you can literally pay to interrupt if you've saved some action points. So now you've got, you know, some some command points, some action points in your pocket. And you're like waiting to do your thing. So you're you're watching them, seeing how they're spending, what they're doing, trying to predict movements. So, yeah, that's kind of the goal of the game, too. Constant interaction, constant, you know, interplay between abilities and pieces. So you get that that give and take a little bit. Can you talk to us a wee bit about the, the skill checks then? So skill checks, they're actually based on the um, Apocalypse World RPG mechanic is what um, um, Vince, that Vince Baker kind of made famous with his game. And it's essentially after all modifiers, which you can never get more than plus three or minus three on any modifier, not net, but up front. So it keeps things simple. I can roll back to that in a second. But essentially, if you get a 10 plus, it's a total success. And you're going to get to do an extra action or an extra thing, or it's going to cause an extra ability to fire off. Um, seven to nine is a partial success. You did what you wanted to, but you know your opponent's going to have some advantage. And then six or less is a complete failure, and that's where your you know your opponents can get like activations and things like that. That's uh, the worst result. So you don't want. So now the, when you're rolling dice, you're obviously trying to get plus three. But you also don't want to just overload everything. Like, you know how sometimes you get like, talking about other games where you'll have like 20 miniatures miniatures just smashed in the middle because you're trying to get a ton of pluses. Here, once you get plus three, you stop. So there's no need to shove more miniatures or more advantage in there. Same thing. Mm -hmm. Your opponent's only going to get negative three. So it's more about uh, thoughtful use of advantage and disadvantage to get that overall. You Mm -hmm. know, you get that... It's a window of getting advantage versus I'm going to try to get plus 20 and you're going to get negative 17 for me to get a plus three. It squeezes it, right? It squeezes it down. So now we're not just shoving everything in there in a big scrum. It's let me get a few pieces here. Let me have someone ready to counter or move on the opposite side. Um, And like I said, yeah, because you have a graded success, is it worth the risk of rolling a failure? Is it worth the risk of giving them a, a partial move? Is it worth... Is it worth that? It's not just, I'm just going to roll all my dice and see what happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so you've got another decision point. What's what's the risk worth? And I think when those big risks pay off and you get that total success or a critical success, it feels even bigger in that moment because there was more decision leading up to it as opposed to I'm rolling and it may or may not happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we're uh, putting together our, our warband or our faction, then we're starting them up with a... Uh equipment and then they're going to get some enhancements as well aren't they so that's sort of like you're just uh, beefing them up with various things that are going to hopefully be effectual for you yeah and you just and, and, and like i said you could stack as many things as you want and you could stack multiple weapons to modify something that you have modeled on it and this is really this game especially is whatever model you have pull it out and just start throwing everything on it so that it can behave like you want it to so even if there isn't the special laser cannon that you have just start throwing abilities or mixing and matching to give you the effect that you want and call it a day so you know it's more of a a way to tinker with things to get exactly the result you want and the same thing with like the groups and squads you know just if they've got five different weapons just throw all the different weapon types in there it doesn't matter it's all going to come out in the end because it has like like a gestalt principle you're either going to be able to only use one thing or the two things will 
stack and you'll limit your results to plus three anyway. So mm. it's kind of a self-regulating system. It's how much do you want to spend on it to make it cool? Mm -hmm. Could you talk to us a wee bit about how the, the combat system works? Yeah. So combat, um, as, as you get into it here, you're rolling those 2d6 and you're, you're getting your modifiers and you're looking for successes, but based on different types of enemy types, you're going to take damage and that damage can either be used to eliminate models or from a shared energy pool. Think about like a shared HP pool between your force. And you can use that to, you know, you can eliminate energy instead of units. And that kind of gives you an option to say, Hey, is this guy cannon fodder? Do I need to save him to, because of his great abilities or do I want to keep him there to keep this guy locked up? So, you know, and also, Oh, I, you know, I really like this cool model. I'm going to pay whatever it takes to keep it on the table. Cause this is what I, I wanted to highlight today. Um, so yeah, the combat besides the modifiers and the graded success is really about how much damage are you going to do and how do you mitigate the damage? Um, and like I said, having a shared health pool, you're either eliminated or you pay the amount of energy to keep them on the table and it eliminates uh, record keeping, uh, but yet gives you a lot of, a lot of granularity without, overhead i think mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and uh, another great way of doing that seems to be this pawn system like uh, it seems to be a very good visual way of showing uh, a character's health so for, i mean for the listener could you maybe explain the pawn system and how it sort of works yeah so the pawn system is um and this is one of the things i personally uh, love about the system um the pawn system was inspired for me by like in-game bosses or that you would fight in like a video game. And I thought, you know, as they go along and you're defeating them, they usually lose abilities or powers. They get less than. They, and so I'm thinking, how do I model that on the table and how can I get other cool models? So the pawn system is you basically have your hero model, whoever, whatever they are. And then you have these pawns that assist them. They don't really take up space on the table or anything like that, but they each give you a power or ability. And they're kind of like your leader's personal pool of points. So now as they take damage, you have to say, do I remove this thing that causes terror? Do I... Have, you know, I have these grunts that give me two pawns instead of one. Do I just let them go as fodder? Do I keep the one that gives me an increased command range? So it, it gives you a feeling I'm fighting this epic battle against this guy. I'm taking them down and they have the decision point of what am I willing to lose to keep him in the game? What's what's better for me at this moment? And you have these cool models that, you know, like command retinues from 40k and other games or stuff like that you can now model all that on the table it's not taking up space or doing a thing but it's actually providing you real gameplay no bookkeeping or record keeping and it adds to the visual spectacle so mm -hmm. yeah the pawns i was i was really i was really proud of the way those turned out and i think it's a for people who like to model things it's a, it's a great opportunity to kind of really go crazy yeah, as somebody who just like collects miniatures that I like the look of from any company, I like this because, in fact, I love it because there's just a lot of miniatures I've never been able to fit into games. 
Whereas the pawn system, it's a great opportunity to say, okay, now this guy can be involved because he's going to be this special ability. That's what he's going to represent. And fair enough, like you say, nobody could actually shoot him. He can't fight anyone, but he's on the table. You know, um, he's part of the spectacle, and it's it's just this really cool way of getting models on the table. And again, it, it gives that. It's almost like a visual indicator of health, isn't it? Because the, the more pawns you see disappearing, you know that this guy's getting weaker as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what I made it for. Because I was, I'm the same way. I would have all these miniatures from companies. I'm like, I don't want to play their game, but that particular mini is so cool. I want to get it on the table, you know. And the other thing, not only are they part of the spectacle, but like when we play, uh, me and my buddies, and we're play testing and doing things, we always like the narrative side. So a pawn that's doing something, even though they have no, you know, technically physical pregnancy presence uh tactically on the table we will move them around over here to be like oh they're harassing or the radio man we'll actually move the piece around so we'll have pawns all over the board because we know what they are but we shift them to kind of tell the story of what effect they're having or what they're doing or you know if one you know if you're protecting one we'll move it in front of our guy even though they're not technically they're protecting uh it's just another chance for you know story i think and to reinforce the story that you're telling through the miniature so not only they're like a pool of hit mm. points, but they're also telling the story of what they're doing and giving you a chance to further create that image on the table that you have in your head of what's going on. Yeah, I see this as a way to almost get that, like what is thought of as a 40k sized army on the table without all the extra bookkeeping and without the extra hours designed to, you know, to take care of all these characters. They're on the table. You know, you could have a big force on the table, but they could be pawns. So I, I think it's a really great feature of the game. How one thing I well I think I found how many pawns you could use. It seems to be based on the mission level. Is that right? Like depending on how many pawns you could take. Yes. Um, so mission level, yeah, it just determines. It's basically the higher the mission level, the more pawns you can take because it's determining the power level of the game and what your essentially what your hero's level is. And then the number of pawns, you know, like I said, there's some pawns like the grunts that allow you to take two pawns instead of one because they're just fodder. But I would also say if people are playing the game and they want to bring more, as long as you and your opponent agree to the same thing, it'll all come out in the wash for the most part. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, if you want to stretch the system and do some other things, you know, at, rules as written, it's designed to keep you in kind of like a box where playtime and balance and, you know, all that's in there. But you know, for people who want to like go crazy and have super powered heroes and stuff, just increase the points value or just increase the number of pawns and figure out what you like the, the feel of. What about the, the rogue die system then? Could you talk to us a wee bit about that? Yeah. So the rogue die is essentially a rogue die. We're rolling 2d6 for everything. And the rogue die is a is a different colored die that you throw in the mix. And when it matches one of the other two die, it's either going to cancel it out. And if it creates a failure, it's going to create effect. Or if it matches one of the die on a success, it's going to have an effect. So we use these for, you know, power weapons or return fire or all sorts of different melee attacks. And it just gives you it's another way for you to interact and interrupt what your opponent's doing or to model the chance of something big happening when you're using a weapon. Um, you know, and it, it, from the math side, it allows you to do some interesting things because of the 2D6 matching one. It's the calculations are easy to calculate on the back end for, for a value for points, if that makes sense, from a design perspective. But it's a lot harder for someone to gauge on the tabletop 
you know, what the odds of it being a success are by the time they get a plus two modifier and then the die. And is it going to match? And what is the chance of success unless they have it ready on a sheet of paper? And to me, that keeps you more in the game and your choice is intuitive as opposed to mathing out what you're going to do. Um, and, and I think that bit of fog and grayness around how the, the statistics of the rogue die work make for better play and more interesting play and keep the game moving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, rogue dies for, you know, making exciting stuff happen and giving you a chance. And when it does happen, a lot of those effects, like when you're intercepting someone or when you're doing counter fire, they're huge. Like if a rogue die matches with a six and causes a failure on a shooting, that would be six damage going back the other way towards the unit. So most people aren't going to give that much damage away, but if it's towards the end of the game, it's, it's a tough choice. Do I let this unit go? Who's got some power and some wounds or do I put, you know, do I take six of my energy out of what's probably a limited pool anyway? So they're, they're big moments in the game too, when the rogue dice hit typically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just, I'm really excited about this rule set because of the, the, the different opportunities. I really like narrative and story and, you know, some of the things that we see in the book, some of the examples that are given are like, you know, picking miniatures up and throwing them into electric fences and stuff like that. Really cinematic yeah. <laughs> and fun kind of, and do, do you feel that that's, a big part of your ethos because we we see elements of it in both these games and no doubt the other stuff you create too just that um almost video game uh, style uh fun at times that you, you kind of try and put into these games yeah for sure i mean video games are a huge uh source of inspiration for me and i and i i really like to put that feeling on the tabletop um I know we haven't talked about it today, but like, you know, my, my tabletop football game, uh, techno bowl is kind of based on like old NFL blitz and things like that. And it's the same thing. I want that feeling of I'm creating plays and running things and the chances for big things to happen And rogue planet and mayhem are the same, uh, designing for a feeling or the vibe that it elicits on the table is just as important to me as the tactics and the mechanics. So it's, I usually start from a theme standpoint when I design. I think most people should. And I think it comes through in your design. If you say, I want to make a sci fantasy game, what are the elements that are important? And then you design for it. Same thing. I want to make a tabletop sports game or I want to make a mass battle game. What does that feel like? What do what I want people to think about in, in, in the moment? But for sure, narrative is to me always important and, and comes up top. I want it to be balanced. I want it to be tactical. But it should feel thematic and everything that you do should reinforce theme and narrative. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, you've touched on your other game there and I want to ask you about your other games and projects in a second, but just a final thing on these two games, Rogue Planet and Mayhem, what like are the communities online around them? Is there a lot of uh, community interaction around the games and a lot of folks playing them and reaching out to you with, with different stuff around them? There are a lot around both of them. Rogue Planet actually has a really like big hardcore community and one that does a lot of house rules and like the, the Berman blog online. It's linked from like my website and things. You'll see his stuff. Um, a guy in Australia, he just puts out amazing like 40K and Inquisitor specific rules and uh, the Baron's blog online. He's another guy. He just does a ton of mayhem stuff. Um, yeah. And, you know, even like on the Wargame Vault, site itself like rogue planet i think we have like a 
the comments section for most games on there, like on the reviews, have like two or three comments. I think that one has like something crazy, like 200 comments. And it's just, yeah, people, I think once they get it on the table and like experience it, you know, guys who are hardcore war gamers, when they first pick it up, I don't think, I don't think it resonates when they read it at first. So they really have to get it on the table. But once they do, I think they realize like, oh, this is, this is something different and kind of takes the, you know, the chains off, uh, you know, that you had from other games that lock you in these boxes. And once they get in there, yeah, it's, it's exciting. So yeah, communities are good. They're strong. And uh, the people who are really active in it put out a lot of content and it makes me feel good. And uh, I always like to give a shout out to them and all that they do. Yeah. It is one, like one recurring comment that I've seen was, was stuff around like Rogue Planet is kind of complicated and inaccessible. And, and me, like I consider myself not particularly intelligent, certainly not when it comes to interpreting rules. And I've, you know, I understand it. I had to ask you a wee bit, wee bits and pieces a day, but I get it. Like I, I can't wait to put it on the table and I really don't see it as complicated, more just like you've said, different. Yeah. And, and, and I think you just hit on the the prime point, I think because it's different. Most rule sets that you go into um, are derivative in some way on the classics. So they have classic turn structures and phases and interactions, even dice systems are similar. So when you go into Rogue Planet, where basically every single system in it was custom made for the game, but they're not in any other system. So people don't have that familiarity so it feels complicated i think the people who love it the most are people who have never been miniature gamers or people who like pick it up to get their kids into games and put on the table like oh this is easy and fast and you know the same type of people who would play song of blades and heroes i think enjoy rogue rogue planet and mayhem um and then it bleeds into other audiences as they play longer i think people who are further along in their wargaming journey will then turn to these games and hopefully find something that they like, but yeah, I, I, sometimes people will be like, Oh, this doesn't make sense. And that'll, they'll start telling me why it doesn't make sense. I'm like, Oh, you're trying to completely turn it into Warhammer or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. Warmaster. It's, it's not that just take it for what it is. And, you know, a video play will, will make all the difference, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah, I see that in the table and board games that I design too, sometimes because, you know, everyone's played a deck builder. So when you put out a new deck builder, it seems like, Oh, everyone knows the rule, but the first one didn't have those issues. So anytime you do something the first time, it's always going to meet a little resistance or uh, there's going to be a little skill gap in learning it, I think. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad to say that you said it's pretty easy because, I, yeah, I think most people who come in without a hardcore wargaming background are just, boom, they pick it up mm-hmm. and they're right mm-hmm. in. Yeah, the ground it's like almost that curse of knowledge sometimes for people. Like, you know, 20 years of playing Warhammer this way, they just assume that that's how everything works. So yeah, and those assumptions always get in the way of interpreting something else. So mm, yeah, mm-hmm. so true. So what, what you mentioned uh, American football there. What was the game called? Um, Techno Bowl. You know, it's a little play on the old Techno Bowl, but yeah, it's um, it uses a similar success system from uh, Rogue Planet, but you literally build your formations on the fly and uh, you set up your cards and you do your little gameplay. But because of the varied success. When you're doing blocks or doing things like that, you can cue extra activations so you can open up gaps and run the play or throw a perfect pass to a guy and he runs downfield um, or you fail and they get to reverse moves and do things. So it's pretty dynamic. I think even if you're not a uh, 
American football fan, if you like war games or tactical games, it's people find it a lot of fun, I think, in the wargaming community because it's, you know, there's threat zones and you're doing things and you're moving guys. And it's self, you know, all the stuff on the print and play is self-contained so you can make you know, a couple of teams pretty quickly and, and get some games in. But yeah, it's it's another one that I really wanted to hit that same itch that those video games get with the extra added of making your own formations and plays, which you can't do. So you're constantly creating and trying to figure out what your opponent's doing. And it's been well received. It was, it was my first actual board game that was produced. So Is that a miniatures game then, or is it counters? No, it's, it's a board game and... Um, the production one had like typical punch standees, but I did little pixel block players uh, for the others that are print and play. And now we have like sticker sets. So you basically take a, a three quarter inch wooden or plastic block and model these football players around them. So it's got their numbers on the top and their stats are totally tied to their player number. So everything you need to know is in the jersey number. So once you see the jersey number and have the placement, you've got everything you need to know. So yeah there's a tabletop simulator mod for it too so people play online so if you ever like you know get the rules or want to like have a game or something yeah it's on there it's not quite as fast moving online but the the mod's really really good the guy who did the mod is fantastic and it's got a really active community and and that game's played all over the world i'm always getting people who are running leagues in spain england france and any other uh, wee games that we we should touch on as well? So the, the website uh, is it Bombshell Bombshell Games is your website? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Bombshell Games dot com is your. I will put it in the show notes, obviously. But any other games there that you want to give a wee shout out to while we're talking about them? Um, the new wrestling game I'm working on. It's a uh, World of Wrestling. It's basically like the old. Uh, Nintendo 64 WCW versus NWO wrestling games with parodied wrestlers and abilities. And uh, yeah, there's a board game geek thread on it uh, in the works in progress section and just super stoked for it. It's uh, pretty exciting and super thematic. We've actually, I've actually created a little like physics engines for all the moves so that slams and pile drivers and suplexes look like they should in the game and have like tactical effects and, uh, yeah, I think war gamers will, you know, really, really love it, and it's it's going to be it's going to be cool. I'm pretty excited for what's going to happen with it. Yeah, I like the look of that. As somebody who grew up grew up with WWF in the, the early '90s, I'll be uh, looking forward to to revisiting that. I had a Commodore 64 game of wrestling. It was a bit um, it was a bit two dimensional, but I'm sure this will be oh, a yeah. lot more. Oh, fun I remember here. the Commodore 64 Amiga days. Yeah, those yeah. were those are good times. <laughs> <laughs> So Brent, where can uh, where can folks keep up with you online? Where could they find out more about when these games come out and any new projects that you're working on as well? Um, my website I update infrequently, but the uh, things are there. Bombshell gamescom um, I'm on Twitter um, at the Brent Spivey. Um, so I, once again, not super active, but when something new is coming up. I'll link it there. Uh, usually, if it's a board game, I have a works in progress section on Board Game Geek, and I'll link to it from um, Twitter. Uh, the, the other thing I'm going to start doing, uh, I just like a month ago set up a Twitch channel where we want to start broadcasting some board games and uh, some prototype design stuff so people can kind of see and interact while I'm doing that. Because, you know, there's so much time for development that people don't that I'm not interacting with people because I'm a design mode, it would be a good chance for people who are interested in that way to either a 
see games that I already have, what we're doing with them or new designs or just kind of get chats and updates. Um, so, and that's also my Twitch channel is going to be at the Brent Spivey. And hopefully next month, I just got the channel kind of situated right now. It's just me and my friends playing some games, but uh, hopefully in a month we'll give away a couple of copies of Techno Bowl. There's like two copies left in shrink wrap in the world. And we're <laughs> going to give those away on a, a raffle. That's a, that's a hard to come by game. Uh, so yeah, we, uh, I managed to source a couple of copies. I haven't told anyone else this, so you're the first to know. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to give a couple of copies away on a raffle just as a way to kind of drive some engagement because it's, I think it's going for like two to 300 bucks on the secondary market in some places, okay. like 150. Yeah. So that'll be a nice grab for someone, I think. Yeah.